Hello and welcome to the Ambassador Labs podcast, where we explore all things cloud-native platforms, developer control planes, and developer experience. I'm your host, Daniel Bryant, head of DevRel here at Ambassador Labs, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Bo Daly, DevOps platform engineer at Zipcar. Join us for a fantastic conversation on designing platforms based on Kubernetes, improving the lead time from idea to production, and cultivating a great developer experience. And remember, if you want to dive deeper into the motivations for and the benefits of a cloud-native developer control plane, or are new to Kubernetes and want to learn more in our free Kubernetes Developer Learning Center, please visit getambassador.io to learn more. Welcome, Bo. Many thanks for joining us today. Could you briefly introduce yourself and say a little bit about your background as well, please? Sure. My name is Bo Daly. I'm a platform engineer at Zipcar. Been there around about 10 years or so. And in that time, I kind of transitioned a few times myself in as our platforms have transitioned. So I started out as a, I guess, as, almost as a front-end developer, uh, what they used to call a full-stack developer, when mm-hmm. full-stack meant you wrote JavaScript on the front-end and the back-end. And then over time, just graduated into more and more of an interest in platform as a as, as an idea, as, as in how people get their work done and trying to, trying to help developers become more, more effective at their, at their own jobs. And in the, end, in the end, I found myself in this space that we call DevOps or platform now, um, really focused on that developer experience and in making developers understand how it interacts with the other components in the system and, and make sure that they, get a, they have a, a seamless path to production. Super. Very similar backgrounds you and I have got both. <laughs> As you were saying, that, like, I was like full stack when that meant front end, right. back end, a little bit of database, right? And now, yep. of course, like full stack can mean everything, right? From Terraform, mm. Bash scripts, all the things, right? So I think, you know, you and I have trodden similar paths and I'm sure you've wrangled with the complexity that's come, come with, right? In terms of learning many things along the journey. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. The, the stack is, is a lot deeper and wider than it was when when people started using the word full stack. So I really, I don't think that full stack is a, uh, a useful term anymore. It, it seems to mean someone who knows how to code React in the front end these days, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, nice. Go straight yeah. on the resume or the CV, mm. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So you mentioned about designing platforms, and as you know, you and I have been mm. chatting a bit off mic, and I'm super excited to share with the listeners your insight into this, because you know, being with the company for 10 years, you've clearly understood the business problems you know you've seen the evolution of the business the technology like the actual the way the companies harness the technology it's a fantastic vantage point to share your thoughts your experience with i'm sure many listeners who are going through similar things so if we Mm. were to sort of pull apart the designing platforms could you share at a high level and perhaps we can dive in a little bit but could you share at a high level what the zipcar architecture and corresponding platform looks like please Today, it is a platform based on, it has a number of microservices, which, which are internally called cheetahs. It's sort of an in-house framework that runs on Java and Ruby. And so we have a slightly heterogeneous environment. We even have some Node.js in there as well. At its core, it's a continuous delivery platform. The, the general idea of it is a developer should be able to come up with a new idea for a microservice anytime and in a self-service way, create everything they need to get it deployed to production. And with with a couple of PRs, they can in fact be in production. So you could yes. theoretically get your code into production in an hour or two of starting your project. You're probably not going to do that practically speaking, but <laughs> but but that's that's the general concept. So to do that, we have to there's, there's a lot, um, 
that basic idea makes it has a lot of a lot of hidden assumptions. I guess mm. a lot a lot of these hidden assumptions are sort of conventions that we've adopted over the years. Things like your your application runs in its own Git repository, um, which you control, and you're responsible for configuring its 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 build process effectively. Although we have pipelines that you can you can effectively run a script, and it's going to build you a default pipeline uh, that will get you all the way to a Docker build. And at that point, you can raise a PR against production and say, hey, here's my here's my build. It's got this version number. And uh, someone suitably qualified can say, yep, that looks cool. And you're and you're in production now. And yeah, so the the basic concept was a was is it's very much inspired by the continuous delivery sort of movement from about five or six years ago, <laughs> which yeah. you'll remember yourself. Yeah. Um, and in its first implementation, it was built on a bunch of Cloud Foundry components, oh, um, which we played around with Cloud Foundry for quite a while. We liked it in its general concepts, and but a few of a few of the things that that they were really into, we disagreed with, and our sort of <laughs> nice. philosophical disagreements are um, probably pretty irrelevant because it's a it was a platform that was quite mature at that time, and and it was probably ahead of the game really. But we we did we did. For our own reasons, disagree with things like build packs, um, oh, which, I, oh, which I, I know I know that I know that you're a fan of. Having yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> we can discuss that later. But what, and we also wanted, in order to fulfill the sort of the continuous delivery idea, we wanted to have a sort of a gold binary, effectively. And oh, nice. when you when you operate across multiple platforms, you can't have a gold binary which is just like a jar file or something. You have to have something like Docker is perfect. Mm. A Docker image is is now a thing that you can version and you can deploy it in your dev environment. You can deploy it in your pre-prod environment. You can you can deploy it in all of your production environments. We we have many many production environments, and the same application runs the same way in all of them, right? And and so Docker was perfect for that. So it was it was really that second generation of Cloud Foundry that that introduced Docker as a as a first class citizen. So we we were very early adopters of that, which meant that we were, I guess, already on the path to Kubernetes when we started building that. Gotcha, I understand. Yes, I guess we started with Kubernetes a few years ago when we were doing an equivalent project for our parent company, Avis Budget Group, who they wanted a, they really, they really were interested in a, you know, Kubernetes-based platform. Mm. We use that as a sort of a learning experience for ourselves, and now we're, and now we've just completed backporting our our in-house Zipcar platform into Kubernetes as well. So. It has a what were you calling it a uh, developer oh, control plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, we have one of those, uh, which is effectively a command line tool and a and an operator which runs inside the Kubernetes oh, cluster. It picks up state changes and makes the necessary changes inside the Kubernetes cluster on behalf of the application on, and on behalf of the deployment. And that allows us to replicate exactly the same deployment process in. All of our environments, and we can automate everything nicely. And so, yeah. So you asked about you're pointing at how how do we make the decisions about how we how we build platforms like this? And, and there's a, there's a lot of I suppose a lot of it is arbitrary. I've heard people on this podcast argue that probably shouldn't do what we what we in fact did. <laughs> you can bring your then that's your uh, turn to say stuff, though, right? right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I liked what uh, Cheryl Hung was saying recently on this on this podcast that if you take on this path of building your own internal tools to to abstract your own abstractions on top of kubernetes mm. you're in you're into a difficult path which yeah, is yeah. you're, you're in, into a difficult world where you you now have your own set of dependencies you, you run the risk of in some ways being ahead of the community in your own internal abstractions mm. and then 
in another way is being behind the community in terms yeah. of the, the way the platform, the underlying platform is moving forward. And that's that's absolutely true. The counter argument to that, that though is that you end up with a very concise set of assumptions, which um, you're in, which it's easy, very easy to have a conversation with your internal development team about the the different sort of deployable components that are going out, and it's easy to create standards on top of the very very generic tools that Kubernetes provides, and so that that translates into a lot of developer efficiency, I guess. And you still have the possibility there because you're on a very open platform like Kubernetes, you still have the option of allowing developers to jump outside of those those guardrails, I guess. Like an escape hatch. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and and I think this is one of the more interesting things that discovered over many years between this. There's a certain category of developer that lives inside the lives right on the rails all the time. They're very efficient. They're very good at getting their their work done. They just follow the path that's laid out for them, and they're actually not interested in the in in the underlying platform that much. Yeah, yeah. And they don't need they don't need to know how much memory is attached to this particular node. They don't need they need to they don't really care about things like that. Yeah, if yeah. they wanted to find out, they could, but it's 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 all there available to them. But but they they have complex problems of their own to solve. And yeah. that's what they're that's what they work. And then and that's great. So the platform works works for them. And there's another category of developer that is that hits the the edge really quickly and yeah. becomes frustrated. Recognize them. <laughs> <laughs> And and sometimes that that leads to a little bit of conflict inside the organization. Uh, mm-hmm. Why does the platform? Why did you make this set of assumptions? Mm-hmm. Why did you make this set of decisions? That that might be a, a problem in some cases. But I always really like those conversations because in in the back of my mind I'm thinking, this is a developer that I'd like to steal onto my platform team. Yeah, that, that <laughs> great. Um, yeah, yeah. Asking right. the right questions, right? They're they're mm, really engaged. Yeah. 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 Why did you make this decision? It's like, well. We're we're about to have an interesting conversation now, and we're not just you, I'm not you're not just blindly accepting the the world as it's been presented to you. This this makes you a, a potential platform engineer. Let's keep talking. <laughs> do you recruit developers like that and onto your platform team, or do you actually mm. hire folks externally onto your platform team? Yeah, we I guess we do a bit of both because mm. we have now now that we're on familiar looking Kubernetes type platform, we can once again, hire people from the outside world who've used our technology before. Right, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> the danger. Is... If you've got a completely bespoke platform, it's very hard to hire skills. Like, yeah. yeah, good point. And so, yeah, so we have a, a good number of people that came in from the general Kubernetes community. Uh, they know all the standard tools. They know Terraform. They know how to, use, how to navigate their way around various cloud providers. They know Kubernetes pretty well. They know all of the monitoring stack pretty well. And that's, that's great. We haven't had that experience for a while. <laughs> that's, that's a great <laughs> but, benefit, um, right? Yeah, it is. Um, but then, for our internal tools, we we do frequently recruit from inside the broader engineering group in in Zipcar because because that's more of a developer mindset, and yeah. we we write our internal tools in Go, which is a language that our internal our internal teams don't use, but it's easy for them to pick up because it's language to use, and especially for this kind of tooling, it's perfect and the kind of developer that is asking complicated questions about mm-hmm. the platform is has no trouble picking up Go and yeah, understanding okay. how, how it works. Yeah, so I think that so we have we have a mix, I guess. One of one of our lead developers on our internal. I remember vividly the the arguments I had with him over our you know while he was struggling to use the tools that we were providing. <laughs> and I remember the day he raised a very extensive pull request against, <laughs> against our code base <laughs> unexpectedly. 
and now he's the lead developer of our internal tools. It's yeah, it's it's quite it was it was quite fortuitous. <laughs> That's cool. It's kind of like you know when you and I were chatting off mic. It's almost embracing the conflict in mm. a positive way, right? Because I think there is a tendency to, to shy away from that. But what I'm definitely hearing from you there, Bo, is like these folks have got empathy, right? Like mm. they're they're used to developing. They're like this tool doesn't quite meet my needs as a developer on this platform. If it only did this, and you're like sure thing we can either make this happen together or you can do a pr or we can try and perhaps put it on the backlog and build it but it's that that clear empathy right as and i need mm. this as a developer the platform doesn't offer this exactly and and you could tell that it could have been a disaster like the project could have completely <laughs> failed and we would have be, would have ditched our our platform altogether and we'd still mm. be running 100 in a monolith today which, which we are not and and it could have it would have been it was those kind of crucial I guess conflicts that we resolved in, in a sort of, as you say, in a sort of empathetic way that allowed us to to get to the end of a effectively a complete replatforming, which is the project you should never do uh, according to the internet, and but which everyone at some point has to do, and it allowed us to actually extend the the product and make as as we're moving forward as actually make the product more usable for the end users as well. So even like um, to, just paraphrase that, but like this is super interesting. Mm. Putting a good platform platform in with a good developer experience gave you a competitive advantage, right? You as an engineering team could support the business going even faster. That that's right. Yeah, we we just sort of tightened up a lot of the the the, the loops in terms of how long it takes a piece of work to get to production, oh, and especially nice. a more innovative piece of work, anything that involved some new infrastructure, that was a really a non-starter before. Once, when, when we were very much focused on delivering a monolith, if mm. you wanted to do something outside of that, that was a great idea, except it was, there was no way our operations team as, as staffed at that time could possibly support it. Today, yeah, that's, so. today if, you, if, you have, if you're prepared to read some standard documentation, you can pretty much figure out how to how to innovate some new infrastructure and, and we're able to support it because we're, uh, we have enough automation that we can give developers some attention every now and again. Nice. So kind of like if I was to build a case for like a new data store, for example, you might mm. consult with me and say, here's the bet trade-offs, here's how you go about doing it, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And meanwhile, we might try to recruit you to, to help us um, get rid of the the, the other data store which nobody's using mm. anymore. <laughs> ah, I, I, I like it. Mm. I definitely hear from what you're saying, Bose. Mm. you're often thinking big picture and small picture is that part of your job do you think when someone comes to you hey i've got this problem do you take a step back and go yeah in the grander scheme of things we're optimizing for speed and safety right and the platform's got to support that i'm guessing a big part of your job is saying like why is that a problem like what's the impact there and then making recommendations on how to structure the platform how to design the platform yeah yeah you're right so i guess designing a platform is operates at all kinds of levels sometimes you're jumping backwards and forwards across levels at all all the, all the time you're you're starting with some big objectives like for us the big picture objective was we need to break out of the monolith we need to deliver new business functionality quickly because there are, there are new businesses we need to get in on we can't just hire a thousand people and think that we can yeah. deliver the project we have we have limitations in terms of the number of developers we have so those developers need to not be blocked by our operations team anymore. Um, they need to, all the roadblocks in their path need to be removed. It's a very developer-focused so, yeah. demo, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just that's, that's a really interesting point mm-hmm. you made there. Because definitely, mm-hmm. I you know back in when I was working in like big enterprise systems, there was a very much a, a handoff situation and silos. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, you're right. Ops and you know we developers were <laughs> bottlenecks sometimes as well, but the ops <laughs> were bottlenecks, and and mm-hmm. you were trying to remove that to make it sort of developer-focused, 
self-service, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And um, trying to deliver, I guess, what we used to call service discovery, mm-hmm. which was which was effectively the operations team should not have to get involved in setting up basic stuff like routing, mm-hmm. load balancing, yeah. things yep. like that. And and that was the kind of thing that a an operations team would have to, an operations team would have to get involved uh, all the way through a new piece of infrastructure previously. And and now it's now developers have enough tools at their disposal they can sort of compose them into interesting ways, interesting patterns themselves. Nice. And they rarely have to invent something completely new. When when they do, then it then it's interesting. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, we, and we and we have we actually have time to help them. And and I guess we got to that point because the original core of this team, we, we were ourselves those developers that were frustrated yeah. by the yeah, operations yeah. team. Totally. So we had that ingrained um, empathy yes. already, right? Mm. Yeah, we, we wanted to be able to set up a development environment and we, we recognized that the development environment was going to become extremely complicated really fast. If this project succeeded, we were going to go from having three or four deployables going out mm. once every week or two to potentially hundreds of these things and a very complicated dependency tree that was mm. going to rapidly get out of out of um, control unless unless we had a lot of automation that we uh, thought about ahead of time. Mm. So there was, there was a certain amount of thinking we had to do it ahead of time. But at the same time, we were, we definitely had no preconceptions that we were going to think of every problem that would exist. We had to be able to adapt as we went. And so, yeah, initially we, we had no plan to migrate all, all of our stuff to Kubernetes, but that quickly became the, uh, the thing we had to do. But, and uh, it also, also makes us a lot more flexible because now we can support things that are not just our in-house application framework mm. they also support the uh, much heavier workloads that people like our parent company have they they have been running a business for a lot longer than we have <laughs> and yeah. their uh, and their scale is much bigger than ours is they have workloads that would not have fit, uh, fit into our model at all so we, we now have we, we can now uh, operate i guess on both levels there i guess very nice, very nice. And mm-hmm. I heard you mention your know, Cloud Foundry earlier on in the conversations. Mm-hmm. I did a bunch of Cloud Foundry myself in the yeah. day. And it was the archetypal PaaS, right? Platform as a service. So Heroku, yeah. I did when I was doing Ruby, I was doing Heroku as well. Because they are very opinionated, right? For better mm-hmm. and worse. Have they influenced your design decisions, do you think? Did you already have that kind of, you know, I like this PaaS and I'd like to layer it on top of Kubernetes. Did you have that approach? We, we did have an approach similar to that. I guess we'd already... It was a little bit easier for us than was for the rest of the Cloud Foundry community because they had to, they really had to port everything across into Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. We only had to bring across the things that we were using, which was a subset okay. of the Cloud Foundry pieces. And so at this point, we, we we've retained a few of the the cool things we we got from Cloud Foundry. One of those was this. I don't know if you've encountered this CI/CD system called Concourse. Oh yeah, that's yeah, quite one, Concourse that's CI. quite wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we just run that on. That's just a series of Kubernetes pods now. And at, at least at the time, it was the only only system that you could rapidly iterate on itself. It All of the pipelines are, are code, like a bunch of them now. Yeah. But at the yeah. same time, you can the pipeline can change itself in real time as well. It can keep modifying itself, which sounds horrifying. It's dangerous, right? It's like, like meta-programming <laughs> in Ruby. Almost like it's always, always danger there. Mm. But that meant that we were able to do a lot of, given these series of abstractions that we adopt, adopted, we were able to create a lot of automation just on just on that basic assumption. So that programmable mm. API, like the SDKs, mm. is definitely heard from you several times. Like, if you want to scale, you've got to automate. So you've got to choose systems that really do expose APIs, 
well, well-defined APIs, maybe even standardized APIs that allow you to plug and play? Is that a key thing? I mean, I don't know if you do, do you swap out things, Bo? Have you swapped out things in the mm. past or was that not an issue? Yeah, I think that's important, isn't it? Like that's always been my experience of adopting any framework is quickly um, you wonder whether you're actually using the framework at all. A year mm. on, maybe maybe you have the the core um, control plane and the rest yeah. of it's gone. <laughs> the rest well, there's arguments we made even against mm. Kubernetes, right? Like Kelsey Hightower mm. said a few times, that like, the API of Kubernetes is going to be around for years. Will Kubernetes, mm. the engine, be around? Who knows, right? I think, I think you made a super interesting point there. Yeah. Mm. Right. And... And, and the thing that we'll probably retain even, even beyond the Kubernetes API is, is this CI-CD approach, which is sort of the code operates in a kind of in, in a sort of iterative fashion all the time. The developers are getting quick feedback. They have their, their code is being deployed into a safe environment for them all the time. And it's being constantly integrated in a way that they can test. And it's going to an environment where end users can see it before it goes to production. It's being somewhat safely promoted to production. And that is really the, the core idea that I think will, will persist. Mm. And, and I think Kelsey Hightower is probably correct that Kubernetes API is going to be around for a very long time. It, it, it's a very, a very powerful set of abstractions that you can compose in interesting ways. It's really that sort of developer workflow that, that yeah. I'm most interested in, I guess. And, and the ability to migrate, I guess, one of the things we planned for in our first sort of Cloud Foundry-ish platform was the ability to move to the next platform without too much work. And we didn't want to get in, in, in a platform that was, that was going to eventually disappear. We didn't know at the time that it was going to be somewhat sort of replaced, I guess. But, mm. but, but we did, we, we built sort of into the design, the ability to move to something that was coming in the future. It looked like it was probably going to be quickly became apparent. It was going to be Kubernetes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it could have been something else. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, I guess, our own core API, which maybe we, we would uh, maintain across different sort of infrastructures um, so that we can just keep moving our stuff from platform to platform. Hopefully we never have to do that again. Could you share any insight as to decisions you made that perhaps were good or bad? I often share like the mistakes I've made, right? So that I want other folks to make new mistakes. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of I didn't spend enough time thinking about... Uh, the future of this or whether we were going to perhaps change programming language is there any general advice with all the experiences all the knowledge you've got that if i was coming up to you now and saying hey i'm in charge of a platform redesign what would you get me first to think about i would think about what what is your plan for retiring what's going to quickly become your legacy application mm, um, yeah, which is yeah. probably a monolith that could be something else it could be a series of things it's it's very easy to sort of wave your hands and say, oh, yes, we're going to apply the strangler pattern or something Classic. around yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. and, and that will get you a long way. But it's that, that last 10% of functionality, which is the oldest functionality in your system, it's probably the, co um, the core of your application. It's mm. probably the thing that pays you the money. Yes. That, that is the mm. last thing that um, you're going to switch off in the old platform. And it's going to, the, the tail is very long, I guess is my point. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Makes so, total sense. Yeah. So you should you should have a plan for that piece. And I guess I guess we didn't really do that very well. We 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 had a plan for the the eighty percent, and the last 20 percent was a little bit of a hand waving exercise. And yeah, I would I would recommend working that out. I think you have better tools available today. Infrastructures like Kubernetes can handle 
very you know cloud unfriendly workloads as well. So you you may have an opportunity to bring your monolith into Kubernetes and treat it like a, a special snowflake, which is yep. what you don't really want to do in your Kubernetes cluster, but you can, you can do it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, makes... That that might provide a path that was not available to us at the time. That obviously comes with its own challenges, but that mm -hmm. might be a way to resolve a lot of the problems that you're going to face in uh, in applying that sort of strangler pattern to your legacy app. Yeah, that's great advice. Mm -hmm. So I did some work um, with my buddy Nick Jackson on on the high street. It's a like UK version of Etsy, and we jokingly said it was the monolith in a box. Right. We, we were running Mesos at the time, pre-Kubernetes. We wanted to port actually the monolith earlier on. So we were trying to get ahead of ourselves. You know, it came with a lot of baggage. I'm not going to lie. It was a really long bash script to get it running in a container. Right. This, this, it was a passenger Ruby app at the time. But mm. that monolith in a box did allow us to spin up stuff locally and test it, could deploy it under staging. But yeah, that, that's really interesting to hear you say about that because we kind of went the other way around. We we're like, well, let's get the monolith running in the container. But you're saying sort of, Maybe you don't have to straight away, but definitely mm. think about these things. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the, the way you did it, I think I would, I would do it today. That is not what we did. So until we finally switch off that very last piece of monolith, it's going to have, totally happen any day now. <laughs> We're running in two different data centers and two ah, different complete platforms, and it's not super fun to operate in a world like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo. I made a bunch of mistakes around that on a few mm. migrations I did. And a final question I'm keen to dive into, Bo, is, what would you advise me, you know, similar kind of persona I'd be projecting here, right? But what would you advise me in terms of developer experience? Because I've heard you mention that phrase, and I'm a big fan, as you know, right, of developer experience. And what would you advise around, say you're a platform person, ops, sysadmin, how do I build that empathy with developers? How should I engage with them? Because a lot of them, you know, they've got comfortable workflows. They're very good at doing what they're doing. And to your point, they're solving complex business problems. Like some folks are just like, I just want to code and go home, right? You know, we don't want to be messing around with all the platform stuff, whereas you and I enjoy that. But what advice would you give to someone like us, platform people, right, that are building a platform? We've heard, you know, there's a development team in the corner. Maybe we haven't chatted even. I've definitely bumped into projects where the platform folks have not even chatted to the developers, as tragic as that sounds. But what advice would you give to these ops folks that are building the platforms in terms of developer experience and developer workflow? You, you have to find ways in that work for your organization where you can spend time with developers. That's just unavoidable. In the old days when we used to have offices and we used to go into them and so forth, you could sit with developers as they're trying to solve some some problem and you could work through a solution together and you, could, and you can quickly see, now I can see exactly the, the, the problem you're facing. Yeah. I, understand, I understand why this code we wrote doesn't work for your situation. And that, and now, now I understand the problem that you're facing. And that's, 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 really valuable. So if you don't have that opportunity, make yourself open in other ways. Um, have a Slack channel, which is where the developers can ask questions, mm. they can interact, they can, and, and try to be responsive in there, try to actually have a conversation with the developers. Um, then anytime you have an, anytime you find one of these developers who, who, who seems like they're on the verge of really getting it, just invest time in that developer because that developer is going to help all of their peers from now on. <laughs> They're, yeah, like champions, they become a champion, yes. right? Mm. Just help them get over the line so that they understand some of the core concepts. There are going to be constantly new developers coming into your organization. These days, we might not even get to meet all of the developers. Yeah. And, and so you, you need to have those lines of communication open one way or another. Great advice, great advice. So we're coming to the end there, but anything mm. you'd like to share that I haven't talked to you think you really should <laughs> ask me this question? Anything in that kind of realm? 
yeah. So when we were proposing this this new platform design, it was obviously quite a significant investment for the, the company. So we had to put in uh, a lot of a lot of design work, which is not something I'm familiar with because coming from a sort of an agile development background, you mm-hmm. try to you, you always think that code beats design, and and that's true until you need you actually need some design ahead of time, and there's there's no avoiding it. <laughs> <laughs> so so the so we, we tried to approach that in a sort of an iterative fashion as well, which is we designed a series of components and we got we set ourselves up with fast feedback loops with developers as well. So we, nice. we managed to recruit a, a bunch of developers from across the organization to act as sort of reviewers effectively of our, mm. our designs. And we sometimes we brought them into sessions where we would you know, do a card sort or lay, lay post-it notes down on the table or something and get people yeah, to move yeah. them around into an interesting interesting form the the real objective there was to try not to come up with we're never going to satisfy everyone but at the same time mm. we want to and we want to come up with a solution that is not just a compromise between two competing ideas mm, but is but is yeah. but it's something that some that encapsulates them and actually solves the use case of both people so not just a, a half measure we're, ne- we're never going for a half measure we're always going for a a, a solution that can work for uh, both people, it's a level of abstraction which encompasses both both of the ideas. Nice. And it's nice when you can hit that. Sometimes you can't. <laughs> yeah. What, what survived of those initial design sessions may have only just been a bootstrapping for the whole project, but it's but it was it, it it was enough to establish some of those relationships with 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 people inside the organization as well. Building those connections, mm-hmm. folks you can ask opinions of. I'm kind of curious. A couple of times, you mentioned about the decisions. Did you ever? use anything like um, architecture decision records that if you bumped into those things mike nygaard fantastic uh, architect mm. has talked a lot about adrs architecture decision records and they can be super formal like he's got sort of a formal definition but i wonder did you capture any of these architecture decisions sort of like talk about the problems constraints maybe put it in a github repo or did you do anything mm. like that or i was going to and, and the reason i ask i guess is how you mentioned there's new folks coming on board all the time is how do you pass on the knowledge? Because at a certain point you have like a bunch of constraints and you do the best you can. And then it's very easy for folks, new folks come along and go, why do you make that decision? And you've talked about the conflict and what, what do you point to mm. when they go, why? Do you point to some kind of decision record? Yeah, we, we point to the wiki page, which, which we've kept up to date mostly over the years, which was, there's, it has one dimension, which is a series of decisions that were made, but it's, but it's mostly trying to be an encapsulation of what's the, the current, thinking about this platform and and where what are the decisions that are active today the new developer could take a look at that one caveat to that is i'm yet to meet a developer that came on board and did read any of that documentation. (laughs) so yeah so the i think the 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 personal connections are Mm. actually Mm. at least as important if not more important than um than whatever documentation you can leave behind and have you got any, mm. other than, you know, you've already got great advice about the Slack channels and reaching out to folks. Mm. Is there anything else you've done internally, Bo, to, to maintain those relationships and, or build those relationships? Oh, yeah. I guess early on, we, we ran a series of workshops and, and we, we brought in people from across the engineering organization to, well, I guess to show them what we had for a start. Secondly, to get their feedback. Thirdly, to get their help on a bunch of open architectural questions, but mostly to understand how how it was going to affect their day to day, and Excellent. to give them uh, confidence that we were going to listen to whatever feedback that they had, and also to help just get them set up initially so that mm. they they were working in a place that's comfortable to them. Mm. They 
they could see how their code was 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 running. They could make some simple commits that appear in production very soon afterwards. Um, <laughs> that is the you know as a developer, mm. that's your mm. like that's what you're aiming for, right? Mm. All the time. Can I get mm. my code, my ideas running in prod in an mm. instrumented way? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and 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 so I think that the Zipcar platform is is very much optimized towards that. The other platform we're, we're operating right now for Avis Budget Group is is more of a traditional Kubernetes uh, infrastructure. So I think the, the barrier to entry is higher on that side, but the possibilities are, are greater, I guess. So we may be able to transition a lot of the work that people on the Avis side do into our sort of Zipcar way of working. And that might encapsulate 80% of their, their work and they'll they'll be able to be as effective as a Zipcar developer in short order, I guess. That's that's one of the background objectives that we have in the future, I guess. Nice. Mm. And that's definitely quite a, a nebulous goal, I guess, isn't it? In terms of mm. managing the, as you said a few times, the abstractions are the key thing there, I guess, the lining up the abstractions and where folks have dialed into the low-level Kubernetes concepts, what can you offer them in in replacement, I suppose? Yeah, exactly. So the, the Zipcar platform shows sort of some of its lineage from the Cloud Foundry side as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the abstractions there are very much Cloud Foundry-esque. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Because Kubernetes allows you to define your own abstractions in interesting ways, we, we're able to create an abstraction which describes the, the Zipcar worldview as a CRD inside Kubernetes, I guess. Oh, super um, and, then, and then our operator is able to just bring that into, into reality. I guess that just provides the foundation of the automation. And so it's true to say that Kubernetes can, can certainly do all of the things that those other platforms could do previously. It's just that without some automation of your own, it's going to be it's going to be harder for people Ooh, to, to bring awesome. that into existence. That, I think at the moment, mm. the maturity we're at the organization, that's why we're doing a lot of work on like the DCP, mm. for example, developer control plane. Yeah, I would 100% agree with you, Bo, in that Kubernetes is, is a general purpose framework, I guess, for building platforms, but most of us are not doing general purpose work. We have a business problem to solve, right? And therefore, like I've definitely heard you say a few times, like you're trading off some of the flexibility for some of the speed, if you like, or simplicity. You're putting on your abstractions relevant for Zipcar on top of Kubernetes. And it's always a trade-off, right? When you start putting you know, levels of indirection in there, but it does give you some clear advantages on, you don't need to worry about that stuff as a developer. Focus on pressing that button, shipping into prod, right? Right. We'll, we'll turn your very simple, simplistic manifest YAML file into this sea of YAML that's required to <laughs> yeah. thing into Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, we do a lot of work on automatically generating YAML because like, if you don't learn to, if you don't love that YAML when you join the Kubernetes ecosystem, you soon will learn to love slash hate YAML, right? So yeah, we're, we're investing a lot in terms of um, being able to auto-generate YAML because a lot of it is quite boilerplate, right? But it's so mm-hmm. key to your point about the overall definition. If you can codify everything as an engineer, what more do you want? Do you know what I mean? There's no room for, particularly if it's a declarative specification, right? I assume my application is this. It's so understandable as an engineer, right? Whereas I remember I used to read a lot of scripts. It's very imperative. And something you've done at the top of the script, you'd unwind it later on. Whereas with a declarative stance, it's like, I want this running much easier to understand, right? So I think that power in the YAML, as much as we yeah, have to generate a lot of YAML sometimes, it is all there, right? In terms of this is the definition of our platform, or this is the definition of our application. That's right. And it's very, very powerful, but it takes time to absorb all of those pieces. Mm-hmm. And a new developer is just going to take some time to 
to really grasp what all of the different available levers are that they can they can pull. Some sort of much simpler abstractions, which codify the what we consider to be the, the best practice, or at least mm, the nice. conventions that we that we've decided to adopt, I think are extremely helpful. That's been fantastic. Well said. Like the abstractions, I'm going to have to parse that mm. a bit more. I think that's a that's super deep insight there, mm. and those trade offs I've heard you talk about a lot, I think is fantastic. So thank you so much. If folks want to get in touch with you, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, email? What's the best way for folks to reach out if they've got the odd question that you might be able to help with? Yeah, I don't really use the internet too much. I think it's more <laughs> of a passing fad at this point. But, but <laughs> yes. you can probably find me on LinkedIn. Bo Daly at Zipcar. Super. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bo. Oh, thanks. That was an interesting discussion. Thank you.